Hello, and welcome to the King of Kings podcast. Episode 13, Loose Ends. Craterus and Neoptolemus lay dead on the field, their army scattered to the winds. In the span of a single day, the balance of power had shifted dramatically in the northern front of the war. Eumenes of Cardia, once thought to be fighting for a hopeless cause, was now master of Asia Minor. Eumenes had sent riders south to inform Perdiccas of the news of his crushing victory at the Hellespont. Now, all that was left was for Perdiccas to crush Ptolemy's resistance in Egypt, recover the body of Alexander the Great, and return triumphantly to Macedon to bury the Argead king in the royal tombs of Agai. He could then claim his royal bride, marry Alexander's sister Cleopatra, and take his rightful place as the undisputed regent of the empire, and possibly as king himself. Yet even now, more enemies were beginning to make common cause against the would-be king. Shortly after the outbreak of hostilities between the royalists and the coalition, the news reached the regent of the empire. The petty Cypriot kings, led by Nicoceron of Salamis, had collected nearly 200 ships to lay siege to the port city of Merium, whose governor was loyal to Perdiccas's cause. The island at this time was home to a series of quasi-independent kingdoms, each of which enjoyed a political situation that lay in between being client states and outright satrapies of the Macedonian Empire. Ten years earlier, they had thrown off the yoke of Persian rule and bent the knee to Alexander. Now, they seemed eager to throw off Perdiccas's rule as well. For Perdiccas himself, this news couldn't have come at a more dire time. He was still organizing his own army at his military headquarters in Cilicia for the impending invasion of Egypt. And any successful invasion of Egypt required that he gain naval superiority of the Mediterranean Sea in order to help supply his army through the inhospitable terrain of the Sinai Peninsula and the eastern desert of Egypt. What's more, the defection of most of Cyprus to the coalition's cause came around the same time that Perdiccas learned that his command of the sea was not nearly as secure as he had previously thought. At the start of the war, Perdiccas had called upon the Macedonian admiral Cletus the White with preventing the European rebels from crossing the Hellespont and attacking Eumenes and Anatolia. If you recall from our episodes on the Lamian War, Cletus had been a Macedonian war hero, where in two separate battles, he broke Athens' power at sea, allowing Craterus to cross the Hellespont from Asia and aid Antipater in defeating the joint Athenian-Thessalian resistance at the Battle of Crannon, thus bringing an end to the conflict and restoring Macedonian supremacy over Europe. Perdiccas believed that Cletus's loyalty to the empire meant he could be trusted. Yet like so many before him, Cletus had had a falling out with the regent on the eve of the war, and when the time came, he chose to defect from the royalist cause and ferry Antipater, Antigonus, and Craterus across the Hellespont. Now, as the last two episodes demonstrated, that alone 
had presented enough problems for the royalists. But Cletus's defection meant that Perdiccas had effectively no fleet of his own to call upon. The only other major Macedonian fleet was already in the coalition's hands, as its admiral Nearchus was now firmly in league with Antigonus the One-Eyed, and would soon be employed to transport the general over to the island of Cyprus in support of the rebels. Much like Cletus, Nearchus too had reasons to throw his support and ships behind the coalition against Perdiccas. If you recall back to episode 1, Nearchus had put forward the claim of Alexander's bastard son Heracles at the assembly in Babylon where Perdiccas first seized power as regent of the empire. And when the time came to assign satrapies across the empire, Nearchus was one of the few senior commanders who found themselves without a place in the new regime. All of this, the defections of Cletus the White and Nearchus the Admiral, along with the revolt of the petty kings of Cyprus, was more than enough to catch the attention of Perdiccas. In a surviving fragment of Arian of Nicomedia's Events After Alexander, we are told that the regent rebuilt the royal fleet by gathering triremes and merchant vessels from shipyards across Phoenicia and Cilicia. This new naval force, numbering some 200 ships, would be used to break the siege of Merium and liberate the rest of Cyprus. With these objectives achieved, a new base of operations could be established from which the royalists would regain control of the entire eastern Mediterranean. The added benefit, of course, would be securing the necessary sea lanes to supply the royal army as it launched its invasion of Egypt. With the plans for the Cyprus campaign drawn up, Perdiccas dispatched some 800 mercenary infantry and 500 cavalry from the royalist headquarters in Cilicia. For this side theater of the war, a new cast of characters will be introduced to us, joining other old names who have lived in relative historical obscurity since the partition of Babylon three years earlier. Let's begin with the navy, which was tasked with transporting the army to Cyprus in the first place. It was commanded by one of the few remaining royalist admirals, named Sausigenes of Rhodes. Unfortunately, however, we know almost nothing about him from the days of Alexander the Great, and there are no records to indicate what command, if any, Sausigenes held in Alexander's lifetime. But regardless of his qualifications, or lack thereof, Perdiccas almost certainly chose him for his loyalty, as future events will clearly indicate. As for the mercenaries, those were headed by Medius of Larissa, who held the unfortunate distinction of being the man who hosted the drinking party in Babylon, where Alexander the Great had fallen fatally ill in June of 323 BC. For a man whose role in history is among the most consequential, however, there's a frustrating lack of information on much of Medius's life while Alexander had lived. But what little we do know suggests that Perdiccas committed a serious error of judgment in assigning Medius any role to play in the Cypriot campaign. For one thing, he appears to have only held limited military experience. 
We know that he accompanied Alexander's entourage almost from the moment the king had first set foot in Asia in 334 BC. But Medius isn't attested to serve in any military capacity until 326 BC, when he served as a trireme captain along the Hydaspes River during Alexander's Indian campaigns. Aside from this prestigious, yet relatively minor command, Medius's only notable role appears to be that of a pandering sycophant. According to our ancient sources, Medius is depicted as one of the chief flatterers of the late king, who enabled Alexander's worst impulses and helped to feed his growing megalomania in the last years of his life. Perhaps most bizarre, however, Medius is also said to be the lover of Aeolus. And if you recall, Aeolus had served as Alexander's cupbearer and is usually implicated as the one who poisoned Alexander in stories which allege that the king succumbed to foul play. Of course, that makes Aeolus the young son of none other than Antipater himself, which seriously brings into question Perdiccas's decision to appoint Medius to command the mercenary contingent of the Cyprus expedition. Having the lover of your archenemy's son command hired mercenaries on your behalf to fight your other archenemy does not seem like a stroke of military genius. As for command of the cavalry, however, Perdiccas certainly could have done far worse. We are told that the task fell to a man named Amentas. Unfortunately, that name is also among the most common in the Hellenistic world around this time, and we have almost no indication as to which Amentas Arian is referring to. The most popular theory, though, is that he was the same Amentas who had recently been appointed as a member of Philip III and Alexander IV's personal bodyguard. If this is true, this makes him the brother of Pusestus, who had served as one of Alexander's Somatophilix which the new royal bodyguard had recently been modeled after. Pusestus, if you recall, had received the wealthy satrapy of Persis during the partition of Babylon, and his status as one of Alexander's closest friends, combined with his sterling reputation for being among the most fearless of the late king's generals in battle, meant that Perdiccas could ill afford to alienate him too, especially after losing the loyalty of so many other famous names, like Ptolemy and Craterus. Appointing Pusestus's brother Amintas to serve as one of Philip and Alexander's bodyguards, and also assigning him an active military command, even for a side theater like Cyprus, all speaks towards Perdiccas's determination to maintain the loyalty of one of the last of Alexander's still-living bodyguards who had yet to take up arms against him. And speaking of Alexander's bodyguards, Aristinus, a fellow colleague who had served alongside Perdiccas as one of the seven Somatophilix, had been chosen to lead the entire invasion force. He had first made his introduction in our narrative during the premiere episode of this podcast, when Aristinus put forward the proposition that Perdiccas himself should assume the title of king at the army assembly in Babylon the day after Alexander's death. Needless to say, Perdiccas trusted Aristinus 
perhaps as well as he did Eumenes. So much so, that he declined to appoint Aristinus to a satrapy, and instead kept the general by his side as one of his chief advisors for the last three years. Content with dispatching one of Alexander's own bodyguards to put down the uprising in Cyprus, Perdiccas now turned his attention towards the generals who had conspired against him in Europe. Due to his insubordination, and above all, his theft of Alexander's body, Ptolemy was Perdiccas's chief target. But there was no doubt that his chief rivals were Antipater, Craterus, and Antigonus. Those three were the ones who had pushed the empire over the edge and plunged the realm into civil war in the first place. While it's of course true that Ptolemy had humiliated Perdiccas by swiping Alexander's body out from underneath him, he had also shown little desire to emerge from the hermit kingdom he was clearly working to establish for himself in Egypt. Meanwhile, Antipater, Craterus, and Antigonus were threatening Perdiccas's very status as regent of the empire. The three of them had the entirety of Europe under their thumb, and had managed to secure the cooperation of Lysimachus in Thrace, another of Alexander's old bodyguards, to force a crossing into Asia. Unlike Ptolemy, these three were clearly intent on bringing the war to Perdiccas, rather than simply waiting for the war to be brought to them. Now, as we know, Perdiccas had already made a plan to deal with this threat from Europe, by dispatching his loyal ally Eumenes to delay their invasion as long as possible. But there was little debate within the royalist camp that Eumenes would be able to do more than put up token resistance to the coalition once they had crossed the Hellespont into Asia. Of course, as our last episode demonstrated, far from being little more than a speed bump for the coalition as they steamrolled their way through Anatolia, Eumenes achieved the nigh-impossible and actually managed to defeat and kill Craterus himself at the Battle of the Hellespont. But Eumenes' writers had yet to deliver the news of this stunning victory to the royalists in the south. Perhaps if they had arrived in time, Perdiccas would have rescinded his last diplomatic ploy, which would prove to haunt the Macedonians for years to come. Shortly after it became clear that Europe and Africa had joined forces to oppose him, Perdiccas had done the unthinkable, writing to the Aetolians of all people and urging them to renew their war against Macedon proper in Europe. The Aetolians had long been a thorn in the side of the Macedonians, as several of our past episodes have shown. And after they had joined forces with Athens and Thessaly at the onset of the Lamian War, the Aetolians continued to resist long after both had surrendered to the Macedonians after the Battle of Cranon. Craterus and Antipater had been forced to continue the war on the Aetolians' home turf in the rugged mountains of southwestern Greece. Together, the pair had nearly dealt with them for good last winter, before their campaign had been interrupted by Antigonus' arrival in Europe and his news that Perdiccas was planning to set Antipater's daughter Nicaea aside in favor of Alexander's sister Cleopatra. The conquest of Aetolia was thus left undone, 
as Antipater and Craterus hastily concluded terms with the mountainous tribes, which more or less amounted to a status quo antebellum. With peace secured in the west, the trio were then able to turn their attention east against Perdiccas and Eumenes. Except, peace was not secured in the west. As Craterus was being killed by Eumenes as Cappadocians, and Antigonus was making for Cyprus to face off against Aristinus's expedition, the Aetolians resumed their war with Macedon, this time with the support of the regent of the Macedonian Empire himself. Perdiccas had written to the Aetolians, asking for them to renew their war against Macedon, once he learned that Antipater was planning to cross into Asia. And now, under the command of their own Alexander, a general aptly known to history as Alexander the Aetolian, the tribal confederation invaded Macedon with an army of 12,000 men and 400 cavalry. Descending from their mountain holdfasts like an avalanche, the Aetolians found only nominal resistance assembled against them, as Antipater had gathered much of Macedon's military might for his invasion of Asia. The resulting campaign proved to be a lopsided affair. In short order, the Aetolians crushed a Macedonian army near the border city of Amphysia, killing in the process one of the generals Antipater had left behind to garrison Macedon in his absence. The surrounding countryside and several neighboring towns fell soon afterwards, paving the way for a full-scale invasion of Macedon itself. For the Macedonians, things quickly went from bad to worse. News of the Aetolian offensive prompted the Thessalians to once again take up arms against Macedon. Ironically, this rebellion was staged by the famous Thessalian cavalry commander, Menon of Pharsalus, who actually briefly appeared on this show when we covered the conclusion of the Lamian War in episode 6. At the time, Menon had commanded the Thessalian cavalry at the Battle of Cranon, and since the defeat of the Thessalians and the Athenians in August of 322 BC, Menon had managed to avoid the fate of many other major ringleaders of the Hellenic Rebellion, mainly Hyperides and Demosthenes, by spending nearly two years in exile among the Aetolians themselves. Nearly two years later, Menon now triumphantly returned to Thessaly alongside Alexander's Aetolian army. And with Menon's words and Perdiccas's gold, supplied to Alexander and the Aetolians to aid them in their fight against Antipater's Macedonians, the two managed to raise a substantial army of 25,000 men and 1,500 cavalry, with thousands of them being veterans of the Lamian War. Perhaps most notably, nearly three-quarters of the cavalry contingent were comprised of Thessalian cavalry, which was widely regarded as the finest in Europe. All that was left to face off against this mighty army was a skeleton force Antipater had left behind to garrison Macedon, under the command of a man named Polyperchon. It appeared that one of the great turning points in Greek history was at hand. From the ashes of defeat, the spirit of Hellenistic independence was alive once again. 
Macedon was now on the verge of falling into a state of utter chaos. And with Eumenes and Aristinus assigned to the Anatolian and Cypriot fronts, Perdiccas could finally deal with one last loose end. Babylonia. The administrative and economic heartland of the old Persian Empire had been planned by Alexander to serve as the new administrative and economic heartland of the Macedonian Empire. Legally speaking, it had replaced Pella as the new capital of the Argia dynasty, and for good reason. Its central position along multiple trade routes between east and west had made Babylon among the largest cities on the planet. It was the jewel of the Hellenic world, and the satrap of Babylon was automatically among the richest and most powerful men in the Macedonian Empire, holding a title which rivaled that of the satrap of Egypt or the regent of Europe. Unfortunately for Perdiccas, however, it was ruled by one of his chief adversaries, Archon of Pella. He had been appointed by Alexander himself to rule Babylon as its satrap, and when the army nearly plunged itself into civil war in the days after his death, Archon had gone so far as to openly throw his support behind Meliagor against Perdiccas. After the fall of Meliagor, political necessities at the time had forced Perdiccas to not only spare Archon during his bloody purge of the army, but he was also allowed to retain the satrapy of Babylonia. Yet despite these concessions, Perdiccas remained deeply mistrustful of Archon, and never forgave him for supporting Meliagor's attempted coup. Now that the empire was engulfed in civil war, the political necessity of tolerating Archon's presence in Babylon no longer served any purpose, as the very generals Perdiccas had hoped to placate by allowing Archon to remain at his post were now in open rebellion against him. Perdiccas had almost certainly been plotting to remove Archon from the picture long before the war had even begun. But once the region of the empire learned that Archon had been a part of Ptolemy's conspiracy to hijack Alexander's body, when the funeral procession departed Babylon, the satrap's fate was sealed. An enraged Perdiccas subsequently appointed one of his loyal officers, named Dochemus, as the new satrap of Babylonia, tasking him with seizing control of the imperial capital and eliminating Archon by force. Only fragments remain of Arian's account of the Babylonian campaign, but based on what little we know, the fighting in the capital province appears to have been intense. Archon was an experienced officer who had served with Alexander during the Indian campaign, and had almost certainly been accustomed to the irregular style of warfare the Macedonians had encountered in the Far East. Arian's accounts suggest that Archon knew he was decisively outnumbered by the royalist army that was now marching against him, which prompted the satrap of Babylonia to employ the same sort of Indian-style guerrilla tactics that he had learned while fighting alongside Alexander. Archon did this, by setting up strongholds in the Babylonian countryside with the hope of delaying Dochemus' invasion force long enough to either rally reinforcements in the form of mercenaries or perhaps call upon the aid of Antipater and his allies. 
As for his opponent, Dokimus doesn't definitively appear in the historical record until now, but he almost certainly served in Alexander's eastern campaigns as well, perhaps even alongside Archon. Possibly drawing upon these experiences, it appears Dokimus knew that both time and numbers were on his side, as Arian writes that he arrived in the satrapy before Archon had even finished preparing his defenses. Dokimus almost immediately went on the offensive, leaving the rebel fortresses to wither on the vine while he, quote, pressed on and confronted Archon. For his part, Archon did his best to avoid a pitched battle with Dokimus, as there was little the satrap of Babylonia could do but delay the inevitable. With little hope of relief arriving anytime soon, Arian records that most of the places which were resisting and still holding out were subdued, while Archon himself was wounded in a skirmish and died not long afterwards from his wounds. With his death, resistance to Perdiccas's royalists melted away, and Dokimus soon took control of Babylonia as its new satrap. Archon would be the first satrap to die in the Wars of the Diadochi. Needless to say, he would certainly not be the last. With Eumenes having routed the coalition in Asia Minor, and Dokimus crushing Archon's resistance in Babylon, it appeared the hard part for the royalists was over. Yes, the rebels had scored some notable victories, by flipping many of the satraps of Anatolia and most of the Macedonian admirals to their cause. But Perdiccas was already hard at work rebuilding the royal fleet, and had even dispatched an expeditionary force to seize the island of Cyprus. Momentum was clearly on the side of the regency, and one could be forgiven for believing the war was already won. Next time, we will explore how it all went horribly wrong as Perdiccas leads the royal army to disaster during the invasion of Egypt. Egypt.